The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Welcome to the City Road Podcast. Join us on City Road as we travel along the frontiers of urban and housing research. Follow us on Apple Podcast and find out more about the show at cityroadpod.org. Australia has one of the highest levels of pet ownership in the world, with more than 24 million pets in Australian homes. Unlike other countries where there are lower numbers of pets, our cities are not always the easiest places to own one. For example, you can't take your dog on a train, and if you're a renter owning a pet, well that can make things really difficult when you're trying to secure a home. In this episode of City Road Podcast, we talk to Dr. Emma Power from the University of Western Sydney and Jen Kent from the University of Sydney about why Australian cities don't necessarily share Australia's love of pets. Jen and Emma, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So let's start with you, Emma. How many pets are there in Australia? Look, 60% of Australian households include pets and the most popular animals are cats and dogs and they reckon around 39% of Australian households actually have a dog, so a huge number. Jen, do you have pets? Yeah, I've got pets. I've got two cats and a dog Um, and anybody I think who's had pets will agree with me when I say that they're an extremely important part of our household. They really become part of the family. From a health perspective, dog ownership's been linked to decreased incidence of cardiovascular disease, um, decreased incidence of depression, anxiety, things like that. People who own dogs obviously need to get them out of the house, so they take them out and about walking. Dogs also can contribute to the fabric of a society. So I don't know whether you've ever been out, Dallas, and you've met somebody walking a dog and you otherwise may not have given them the time of day, but because they've got the dog, it somehow sparks a little bit of an interaction, whether that be a fully blown conversation or just a nod of acknowledgement. So pets are not only important for individual health, but they're really important for social health as well. Mm. And those social benefits are are really critical and, and they're what make me always argue that that pets shouldn't just be thought of as having um, an individual benefit. They're something that the community should be concerned about because communities that include dogs tend to be um, friendlier communities. And there's this really fascinating research that shows that people who have pets actually contribute more to the civic life of their community um, than people who don't have pets. So there's something that, that everyone should be concerned about whether they have pets or not. Jen, your research looks at pets and transport, and you say that transport's a messy process. We go to school, we go to Bunnings. So how do pets and transport go together in this messy world? Yeah, I'm, I'm particularly really interested in ways that we can reduce private car ownership. So in that context, I think if we're asking people to move away from owning their own private car and, and driving it, we need to start looking at some of the things that they're doing with their cars. So that's where the mess comes in. So like you say, we we don't just sort of go to and from work, which is what our public transport system is really designed for. But we do stuff like we go and pick up kids, we pick up tools from Bunnings, we go to netball at nine o'clock at night. And those are the messy bits and pieces of the city that I think as transport planners, we 
we often overlook. So carting around companion animals, in this case, this case of the research I did, dogs, is one of those messy trips. Um, not because dogs are necessarily messy, but because dogs are prohibited on public transport, if people are taking their dog any further than a walk away from their house, it's impossible for them to use anything but a car. So if their vet or the dog park or the beach or the family visit is further away from where they live than a walk, then it's always going to be a trip in a private car. So why are we so concerned about pets on public transport? That's a really interesting question. And I think it has historical roots. Um, but my perspective from a transport planning perspective is that we've really um, got this conceptualization of what public transport is for in our cities in Australia. So we think of it as for really clean trips, like I said before, the journey to work, trains and buses, etc. They're all about carting people in suits to and from the CBD or a suburban office hub nine to five, rather than really accounting for the messiness of our everyday life. So people, I assume, would think that having a dog on a, on a train or on a bus is an unusual thing. It's, it's not a sort of clean, normal trip for people to do on a, on a train or a bus. Emma, is the idea of risk important here, the idea that there's a normal way to travel on public transport or a normal way to be in the city and that pets somehow pose a risk to this normality? Pets are increasingly being seen as a risk um, in Australia. If we look at the um, companion animal legislation, we can see that these days pet owners are seen as having a responsibility to manage the risk of their pets. We see pets as being a risk to the public. Um, and in terms of housing, we tend to see pets as being a bit of a risk in the house, particularly when we're thinking about things like private rental. Let's follow up on the private rental mm. uh, question, because I think that's very important that You've written about pets being actually prohibiting people from having security of tenure and even getting housing rental tenure in the first place. Look, it's a fascinating thing. Um, since the 1950s, people and their pets have become closer. Um, we give our pets human names these days. We used to give them pet specific names like Fido. Um, I grew up with a dog called Blackie. My dog now is called Louie. Um, and we tend to keep our pets inside the home. In the 50s, dogs were outside. Um, they weren't even necessarily constrained in the backyard by a fence. They sort of would run around the neighborhood and that kind of thing. These days though, um, we allow our pets to come in the house. Um, we even allow them in places like bedrooms that we used to think of as just very, very specifically human places. But while we've seen that cultural trend happening, there's been a, a growing sense um, of pets as a, as a risk. And um, so one of the challenges um, that, that people who have pets, um, who rent with pets face is that because pets are seen as a risk, many landlords and real estate agents don't actually want the pet to be inside the house. Um, in fact, they don't want to even lease to someone who has a pet. So it can be very, very difficult to find a pet-friendly property, which makes people feel um, very, very insecure. Um, they're not sure whether they're going to be able to find a house that will allow them to have their pets. Um, some people I've spoken with in my research have been told by real estate agents to actually get rid of the pet if they want to have a home. And people have described the process of trying to find a pet-friendly property. They'll say that they go on a, go on a um, property search website and they look for properties, um, apartments or houses in the areas that they want to live in. And when they, when they do that, there might be hundreds of properties available in that area. But when they put the pet-friendly search on, um, all of those properties just disappear into the void. There might be a handful of properties or no properties that will actually allow pets in the suburbs that they're able to live in. That's fascinating the way that public policy 
is coming together with pets and really restricting your access to, in this case, housing. What about the relationship between transport and public policy and pets? What do we know about that, Jen? Well, as I said before, um, pets are prohibited on public transport in Australia at the moment, which is actually quite unusual. I've done a bit of a policy review of cities from around the world and found most European cities enable people to travel with their dogs on public transport. Some cities in North America as well are starting to implement this policy of allowing people to travel with dogs. So Australia is quite unusual, I suppose, in that regard. So what are the differences in terms of different cities or different countries? Yeah, it's really interesting because different cities do have different policies. As I said before, here in Australia, we prohibit people taking pets on public transport altogether. Um, Most European cities, you can take pets on public transport, but they do have different kinds of, of limits, like limits to the size of the pet. Some countries won't allow you to take a dog on a train, for example, if you can't actually carry that dog up the stairs. Um, Other countries have limits to the time that you can travel with pets on public transport. So obviously if it's peak hour, rush hour, you're not allowed to take your pet then. Other countries will charge a ticket for you to be able to take your your dog on public transport. Indeed, in, um, in Switzerland, I think it was, in Zurich, they have an annual pass that you can buy for your dog to enable it to travel on public transport. Emma, one of the things about housing and rental markets is the idea of property values being very important. Is there a relationship between policy pets and property values? Look, in Australia, we tend to value the investor's right to buy and sell housing when the time is right over the right of tenants to make home. And there's a whole raft of policies that that enable that to happen. Um, Landlords have a right to no grounds eviction, for instance. They can kick the um, tenant out whenever they want to without any particular reason. And they can also restrict the rights of tenants to make changes in a property. And of course, they can restrict the right of tenants to keep pets. So there's all sorts of things that, that that allow landlords to, to protect their asset values without actually recognising that this place, that um, this, this investment, is also someone's home. Emma, I'm really keen to get your thoughts on this cultural dimension. Of course, the great Australian dream of home ownership obviously is impacting in the, in the same way that transport and different cultural practices are impacting what we do in other countries. So how does the idea of the great Australian dream impact on pet, owning pets and homes in Australia? Look, in Australia, we think that um, everyone should have the right to own a home. And so what we tend to do is we tend to prioritise anything that sits around home ownership, whether it's buying a home to live in or whether it's buying extra homes as an investor. Um, And the ways that, that rental policy works is that it works to support that right to buy homes rather than um, the experiences of people who live in a home. It goes a little bit further than that, though, because even though we're seeing a fundamental shift in home ownership cultures, we're seeing a decline in the number of people who can afford to buy a home. And we're seeing increases in the number of people who rent and in the number of people who rent long term. We still tend to maintain this cultural and political fiction that everyone will eventually become a homeowner if they try hard enough. And I think that that's feeding into policy practices around renting because it's making us think that we don't actually need to prioritise or think about the experience of renters, um, the experiences of renters renting long term. So if we're moving to a, an, a society which has been defined as generation rent, where more and more people are renting, we've got more investors in the market, then what do we need to do in terms of pets and renters? in terms of policy responses? Mm. Look, I think it's broader than just pets. I I think we're at a point in history where we need to start thinking what it means to rent long term 
and what it what whether people have a right to have a home i would say that everyone has a right to have a home regardless of the tenure form that they're living in and that that means that they should have a right to long-term secure tenure they should have a right to be able to make the place that they're living into a home and as part of that they should be allowed to keep pets um, we've we've spoken already today about the many benefits that pets bring to individuals and communities. So in many ways, it's a no-brainer to think that um, that we should be able to have pets in our homes long term. Some people would say, "What about the landlords in all of this?" They would claim that the, you know dogs can wee on the carpet, they can scratch up the backyard. Um, how should we think about these more complex issues? For landlords, saying that pets are allowed in a rental property doesn't mean that they're allowing all pets. So although it can seem counterintuitive, advertising your property as pet friendly can actually protect you as a landlord. It doesn't mean you have to allow all pets, but it does give you the right to choose which pets will um, will best suit your property. So not suggesting that people have lions and tigers um, living in a suburban backyard, Um, not suggesting that people have really hyped up um, overactive dogs in a a, tiny one-bedroom apartment, but it allows the the tenant and the landlord to make decisions about um, what type of animals will live best in which type of spaces. So are you saying there that some people might have pets and not tell the landlord? So if you have an open discussion up front, you have you get a discussion about the pet and its appropriateness for that dwelling. That's right. In my research, there was a small number of people who took the risk of not declaring their pets. And they it wasn't something that they wanted to do. It was something that they found extremely stressful. But they did it because they felt that they weren't going to be able to find a rental property otherwise. Um, For the landlord, if they've got pets that are undeclared, they can't protect their property in any way. So across Australia, there's different different laws. But in the state of New South Wales, if you're a landlord, um, you have the right to require that carpets are steam cleaned after a pet moves out. Now, you can only have those kinds of things in place if you know that there's actually a pet living in the property. What about the role of institutional landlords in this? Because I think that part of this problem has to do with mum and dad investors managing the pets of their tenants. Would institutional landlords change the landscape? For mum and dad investors who maybe own one or two rental properties, the the risk evaluation is quite different to when you're thinking about an institutional investor who perhaps has hundreds of properties on their books. Um, for a mum and dad investor, if they have the very bad luck of, of having a, a tenant um, or, a, or a pet um, who lives with that tenant that does, does cause damage, then that has much greater consequences to them um, than, than if they're an institutional investor who, um, who has issues with one tenant um, out of, sort of 200, 300 properties that they own. So I think there's a real argument in Australia that if we're moving towards a situation where there's more people renting and where people are renting long term, that institutional investors will be really beneficial um, in moving towards a situation where we can imagine policies that will greater support the the long-term rental and the capacity of renters to make home in that context. Okay, so that was really fascinating about how culture comes together with public policy in a way that sort of manages pets. Jen, in your research, how does policy and culture come together in managements of pets on public transport? Yeah, it is really interesting. I I did a review of the different policies that different countries have for enabling their pets to travel on public transport and found that there are really striking differences. Um, For example, most of the cities in Europe will allow people to take their dogs on public transport, but cities in North America and Australia 
prohibit people from taking dogs on public transport. So while this sort of reflects some kind of historical legacy, I suppose, what I'm interested in is what the differences in policies sort of say about contemporary transport regulation and our attitudes towards public transport. What I'm particularly interested in is whether a liberal approach to having pets on public transport indicates a society that is more accepting of dogs or is it more of a statement about the normalisation of public transport in cities for all different journeys that we do. So what do you think if you had to uh, hypothesise on that question? That's a fantastic question, Dallas. And <laughs> I'm not going to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's a really interesting question. And I sort of dug deeper into the data, particularly about car ownership and the links between car ownership and car appreciation what that says about different pets on public transport policies. I'm just going to grab my notes and, um, and read a bit of a, a journal article that I've recently had accepted on this issue. So what I did was I, to explore sort of this idea that enabling dogs on public transport indicates a society more, of accepting, more accepting of dogs, I looked at the percentage of dog-owning households within a country to use that as a proxy for the country's appreciation of dogs. Interestingly, when I did that analysis, the data suggests that countries with relatively high rates of dog ownership, such as the USA and Australia, are also countries that often prohibit dogs on public transport. The average number of dogs per household in countries that exclude dogs from public transport is 49%, while the average percentage of households with dogs in countries that allow dogs on public transport is just 33%. So basically what it's saying is that the countries that are most travel tolerant of travelling with their dogs on public transport are also the countries where one is less likely to actually own a dog. So what this made me think is that the issue with dogs on public transport is perhaps less about a society's general appreciation of dogs and more about the acceptance of having dogs in public transport. <laughs> so just let me try to get my head around this because there were some um, a lot of stats there in fast succession. The countries that have a higher percentage of dog ownership are also the countries that have the most restrictions for pets travelling on public transport. Yeah, that's exactly it. And what I think is that it's it's all about the way we embrace and accept dogs in public spaces. So in Australia, for example, I would argue that well-behaved dogs are increasingly welcomed in some Australian public spaces. For example, it's not as unusual these days to see a dog in a cafe or a pub. And of course, there's lots of dog parks around. But what I argue, the, the relationship with public transport is that these are spaces that are really outside of the realm of the everyday. They're recreational spaces rather than representative of what construes our day-to-day -day routines, which to me suggests that the concept of dogs in public spaces in Australia is alienated from the serious business and practicality of life in Australian cities. So in that sense, that's why they're prohibited from public transport, which is seen as something serious about getting to work rather than getting to recreational or, or more frivolous trips. That's a fascinating point. Does that play into your research too, Emma? Look, there's a very strong sense that pets are property. Um, pets are something that we buy and that we can dispose of if they're no longer convenient. And that's something that, um, that is very strongly reflected in, in rental policy, um, as well as in the sorts of interactions that people we interviewed had with um, real estate agents and landlords who would say things like, look, just get rid of the pet and we'll give you the place. 
Okay, so we've heard a lot about pets and home and public transport. Let's get to the crux of this issue. What are we going to do about this? So let's take each of you in turn. In terms of policy recommendations, what can we do about this, Jen? Yeah, in relation to that, a couple of years ago, I surveyed about 1,250 dogs and their owners in Sydney, and I was particularly interested in the way that people were travelling with their dogs. What I found was that most of these people on average were doing about nine trips with their dog every week. So that could be anything like taking the dog out for a walk or driving the dog to the dog park or going to the beach. But 3.5 of these trips on average was by the private car. Now, if you extrapolate that up, you've got 39% of households in Sydney owning a dog. That means that there's about 9,000 dog-related trips per week in Sydney and about 4,000 of these are in a private car. If you have 1.6 million households in Sydney and 39% of these households is owning one or more dog, that can add up to about 2.4 million dog-related private car trips occurring in Sydney every week. So there is a rationale for having policies that allows people to travel with their dogs in ways that is other than by the private car, particularly as we're moving to higher density cities and the imperative to shift away from private car use is so strong from an environmental and a health perspective. So I think, I mean, the number one thing that we can do is not prohibit pets to ride on public transport. And it's not so difficult. I mean, plenty of cities in Europe have shown us that, that it can be done. The right policy that is implemented correctly can really work to make pets on public transport something that can improve the conviviality of public transport, improve the idea that public transport is able to be used for frivolous and recreational trips. So would we need a, a cultural shift there as well as a policy shift? I think it definitely would entail some kind of policy shift for some people. And that's what I mean, context is so important here, like anything to do with the city. It's not going to be the same for everyone. And we need to take into account that there will be some resistance. But let's face it, a lot of cities in Australia are really in transition at the moment as they're facing increasing populations, as they're facing increasing density. So this is just another example of a change that I think with the right policy people could become accustomed to. For example, in Europe, I mean, most cities have some kind of regulation on people's ability to take dogs. They don't allow people to travel with dogs during peak hour, for example. They confine the dogs to certain areas, say, for example, the last carriage in a train or up the front of a bus. And always the staff of the public transport, whether it be the bus driver or the platform staff for a train, have the discretion to be able to prohibit somebody from taking their dog on public transport if they feel that it's going to be an issue. So it's not a black or white thing of we either have dogs on public transport or we don't. It's more about negotiating that messiness that we need to get through if we're going to grow as a city and grow in a way that is sustainable and healthy for everyone. And that's a great place to bring you in, Emma, with the higher density living that we have. So what do we do in terms of policy for pets and housing? Look, there's a really pressing need for us to start to engage in a policy sense with the importance that pets have in people's everyday lives. 60% of households have pets, and in most of those households, the pets are considered to be part of the family. There are also animals that, that are alive. Um, there is a really strong connection between um, people having housing insecurity and people giving up those animals. And most of those animals will actually be euthanized. They'll be put down. Um, so the, the, con the consequences are social for the people, but they're also an animal welfare um, consequence that sits behind a lot of these um, policy trends that we've been talking about today. 
So we're at a time in history where we we know that these things are happening um, and we need to start taking the relationship between people and their pets seriously. And we need to start putting in place policies that, that recognise and foster those links. So in terms of things like rental housing, um, we're talking about policies that recognise the right of people to live with their pets um, and to live with their pets in the long term. Jen and Emma, thanks for coming into the studio today. Thanks for having us, Dallas. Yeah, thank you. So that's it for this week. But remember, we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review via our iTunes podcast site. Just hit the subscribe link on our website at cityroadpod.org.